This week on Writers, Inc. It's so true. It's so true. The audience is completely on your side. And I think, you know, when uh, when you are your authentic self and you are like just being who you are on stage and in that most vulnerable way of telling your own story, that um, there's an empathy, right? And people see themselves in you um, and they imagine what it would be like to feel that in that moment. And it's, it's really quite beautiful. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. JD, I heard Elon Musk is buying Black Widow. Is that true? <laughs> no, he's not buying Black. I, I, I'm trying to get this straight. So, like, I, I I follow Elon Musk just because you know, like, there's certain people on my Twitter feed that I just I I read every like tweet that they put out because they either make me laugh or or whatever. And he he's one of them because you have to try it. And like half his stuff, you just have to decipher what he's trying to really say. Um, but like the general impression I got is that he wanted an edit button on his tweets really bad a few weeks ago, and he went to Twitter and and they weren't willing to do it or they weren't willing to do it fast enough. So he's plunking down. Forty-four billion dollars to buy the company to get an edit. That makes button. sense. <laughs> I, I think that I think that's basically w- w- what's happening here. Um, cool, you know, like if you if you could do it, <laughs> you know, like I, I, it got me thinking. I, I'm thinking maybe I'm going to make a play for MySpace because I could probably get that for like a C note and a case of a ramen noodles or something. Right? At you would upload your you know, band like, pick, and not? MySpace won't let you do it, so you're going to buy them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to edit my top five. <laughs> Or top seven, whatever it was. <laughs> top eight, I don't remember. So we'll see where that goes. I mean, honestly, like from a business standpoint, I, I get whenever companies go public, like there's so many people that are telling everybody else what to do. Like I think the companies tend to lose a little bit something. So I do like the fact that it's going to be private again. Um, we'll we'll see what he what he what he does with it. You know, who who knows? At this point, I'm like, social media is kind of in the toilet. <laughs> like I, you know, like <laughs> it, how much worse is it going to be? Really? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. But like twi- Twitter is so important, though. Like, I mean, and and, and the grand scheme, of th- and I, I mean, I'm being kind of serious. Like, I mean, because so many people turn to that to get information for better or for worse. And you know, if they are shadow banning people and they're you know, ban- you know, banning people's tweets or, or their accounts and stuff, just like based on their own beliefs and morals, like that's not. I don't know. I like that's that's not a good thing. Like that totally goes against free speech, which is his whole point. And so, I mean, it'll be really interesting to see what he does with it. And I think a lot of people are freaking out both ways. And it's like just just wait and see what well, happens. He actually put out a tweet, you know, mentioning that he he said this is based. If if if, if he does it right, it's going to piss off people on the far left. It's going to piss off people on the far right. Yeah, and it should. Yeah, it, exactly. So, I mean, like I I kind of take like when when I 
read the news or watch the news, like I, I tend to jump around to the different channels or the different news sources. And, and I know the truth is somewhere in the middle of all of them. I don't think anybody's out, actually out there, you know, putting the, the full story out. So, you know, as, as a consumer, I think everybody needs to be diligent in, in what they read and what they listen to and, you know, kind of find the truth for, for themselves in it. But, you know, and Twitter is no different. You know, anybody can get out there at this point and say whatever they want to say. And, you know, I may not agree with it, but I, I do like the fact that they're able to say it, even if it does piss me off. You know, I, I, I've got friends that live in Europe. I've got friends that live in a lot of places where you, you can't say what you want to say. And if you do, somebody's knocking on your door an hour later or sometimes even faster. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that we live someplace where you can do that. Um, and I, I, I don't want that to change. So. We'll we'll see where it goes. In less contentious news, uh, what's up with Netflix, Zach? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't. I uh, was actually having this conversation uh, for a Creator Dad episode coming up with my buddy Robert Crane, and we were talking about you know their subscriber drops coming out and how their stock is falling and stuff. And obviously, like I don't know, any people overreact to when stock falls, but. Um, like their subscriber base, I don't have the numbers or article in front of me, but it is a pretty big number that it went down this first quarter. And um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, I'm sure. Like JD mentioned before we started talking, um, like I think people are just getting the point where they're with seeing you know, with the end of the pandemic and all that for, you know, people are starting to go out and do more things. And uh, but also like, you know, they're introducing this new password system where, uh, people are, you're not going to be able to share your password anymore with people outside your household. So I think that's had a pretty big effect. And I mean, which honestly, they should have that in place. <laughs> like, I mean, you shouldn't be able to just pirate, use someone else's account. Like it's the, from a business standpoint, that makes sense. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting and, and it's going to be interesting. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about how it could affect like content coming up or whatever as well. I don't know. Well, well, you know what I want to, what I want to, dig into a little bit is like I don't necessarily think streaming across the board is down like I think Netflix and, and maybe the other services haven't released numbers yet or, or maybe they haven't lost subscribers but why why Netflix took such a big hit when the other ones didn't and I'm wondering like I think that is down. Ha, has Netflix lost their sort of competitive advantage they've had as being the first streaming platform Netflix, I subscribe to a bunch of different ones, and Netflix is the most expensive out of all of them. So that's probably a factor. Um, they've had some very strong entertain, you know, films and, and shows and things like that. I think that have held them. Um, you know, I've heard people say they got they've gotten lazy a little bit, and the programming has slipped. I don't know if that's the case or not. I, I do know that they're they're talking about putting out a lower priced option. Um, you know, that's going to probably have commercials in it. You know, so people could take that route if they want to. That's probably a smart move. Um, there was another streaming service. I can't remember what the name was um but they recently came out and and they had a lot of trouble you know like getting subscribers like it, and it was one of the big networks i think it was like it might have been cnn um and they're actually at the point where they're considering scrapping that, oh yeah cnn um, plus they, they did to, i think it was only up for like 20 no, or 30 days scrap. and they, they they pulled the plug on it yeah so it's 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 one of those environments where you know netflix got lucky they were basically the first one to the table but now there's a lot of people you know all chomping away at that that same thing um, so, so that's probably hurting them. And then, you know, the pandemic itself, I mean, Peloton is another one, you know, like the, the stock for that just skyrocketed, you know, cause everybody bought a bike and started exercising at home. And, and now all of a sudden they're able to go back to the gym. You, know, you can go on Craigslist and buy a Peloton bike for a fraction of what it cost you know, a year ago. Um, you know, so that stock is getting hammered too. I think a lot of these things are going to shake out hopefully the next couple of years as we, you know, hopefully get back to normal. 
Um, Netflix isn't going anywhere, you know, obviously. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing well. It's, you know, it's growing pains. You know, it's a brand new industry for, you know, it, it seems like it's been out forever, but it really hasn't been that right. long, you know, so it's, they're, they're feeling their way around. Yeah. In uh, some industry news, want to mention that our friends, oh, uh, Sabrina over there at Google Play Books, uh, said that the, uh, or they made the announcement that uh, Google Play Books is now doing automatic AI generated audiobooks. And uh, so basically, if you have a title on uh, published on Google Play Books, you now have the option with the click of a button to turn it into an audiobook. Uh, so she, she sent the email, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I clicked on the link. Um, I grabbed my new, my, the latest three-story method book that's, that's in there, and uh, I chose the narrator, <laughs> the accent, the age, clicked a few buttons, and it was done. And I was, I'm telling you, I was super impressed. And I'll tell you what's crazy about it. I listened to it narrating the uh, like the acknowledgments where there were a lot of names, and it got every single name correct. Scary. Well, that, okay, I get questions. <laughs> a lot of questions here. Um, so, did you choose the the narrator and all that stuff as a, as a listener or as, as the, the publisher? publisher? Like, did you set it? For, okay, so you set that for yes. for everybody. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm wondering if they're going to change that. And this is something that Joanna has talked about mm-hmm. a couple of times. Like, you know, she, she would love to be able to choose, you know, like a, a female narrator that has an English accent because that's you know, her right. norm. Um, I, I see that if, if they're not doing that now, I can see them doing it. I, I've, I've heard a lot of stuff um, that has been you know, narrated by AI and it, it's pretty impressive. Um, you know, just like some of the deep fake stuff that we talked about a couple of weeks back, like it, it's at the point where it, it can it can simulate a human, um, especially for nonfiction. You know, fiction, I think, is still going to be a little bit of a problem, uh, but not much. I mean, I, I, I watched a, a um, uh, it was, I think it was on YouTube, um, a presentation, um, but they were basically they, they assigned a certain type of voice to different characters in the book. And then it was able to narrate the book, you know, fantastically, you know, like it you know, gave this guy an, an English accent, gave this guy a country or southern accent, like that kind of thing. Um, and it was able able to carry it through so like it, it still took a human to go through and basically assign those to each line of, of dialogue or each line of text um, but then the computer took over from there um, and and the way I understand it that still simplified the process because there's very few errors you know when when they're making that final recording it's basically just the, the time spent combing through so all, all this stuff is coming for sure it's going to lower the cost I, I'm, I'm not sure what, how that's going to impact actual human narrators I'm guessing their billable hour rate is, is going to be coming down in order to compete. You know my understanding so far is that it's uh, there are two different markets market segments. So there, there are people who want just a cheap, quick listen, and, and that's basically what this is, what, what this Google AI is, versus the people who want a, a real narrator. But, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical with the AI stuff. I don't, I don't really care for, for much of it. But for someone who just wants the cheap audiobook version, uh, it seems like a good fit. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I chose, like, the, I think the four-year-old girl and um, her voice is perfectly suited to, to reading a nonfiction book. It, it's it's perfect. <laughs> Amazing, she still got. She the did. Names she right. got all the names right. She didn't, uh, you know, slur R's or anything. It was great. I, I've been pretty vocal about this in the past, and I mean, I think that. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I totally acknowledge this is one of those things that is coming. Like it's just there, you know. I, I do hope there. It's kept separate. Like I do hope these marketplaces like will have AI books and the narrator books. And because like, I'm definitely one who really prefers to listen to narrators. And more than that, from an author standpoint, 
there has been, and not from an author standpoint, but from a listener standpoint, there has been, when I go buy an audiobook, I'm pretty certain that what I'm getting is going to be a very good quality because there's always been a barrier to entry to get an audiobook. It's not the same thing with, like, with, with an ebook, anyone can publish, they cannot have it edited, whatever. But like that barrier, it's expensive to get an audiobook made. And so that prevents a lot of people who aren't making money off their books from going and make an audiobook. Now, that's great. You can talk about it's all inclusive now and anybody can do it. But at the same time, it's like, man, that kind of uh, is it just going to flood the market with bad audiobooks now? <laughs> like, I don't. And, and so I, I hope that it does stay separate. I, I talked to my, my guy I, who who's narrating my Dead Soft series, um, Craig Tolfson. We had a chat on my on the Creator Dad. And it's not scaring him. He's just like, it is something that's coming. I know that I'm still going to get work because people are still going to narrate, going to want um, uh, me to narrate books. But also, he's looking into like licensing his voice for AI companies and stuff like that. Like that's an option for narrators. The flip side of that is some narrators are having are getting into lawsuits because their voices are being ripped off and plagiarized for some of these AI companies. He talked a lot about that too. Um, but it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it's one of those things it's, we'll see where it goes. You know, it's, I'm, I'm interested to kind of see what happens. You know, it, from my standpoint, like I'm, I'm in 30 different languages and, you know, but the number of audiobook versions that I have, I could probably count on one hand because the, the cost is just astronomical, but like something like this, I think it would actually change that. It would be easy enough to put out books in, in foreign languages. Um, the other factor is, is what you just kind of touched on it, uh, touched on is the licensing. Um, you take a guy like Scott Brick, you know, who's all over Audible and probably one of the, the best narrators out there. He, he was battling throat cancer a couple of years back, and, you know, he's obviously bounced back from that, and he's doing okay. Um, but this is, you know, a scenario where he could, you know, do what, what's necessary to license his own voice, basically create an AI version of his own voice. And if something were to go wrong, you know, God forbid it actually does, you know, he's got the ability to, to continue his, his career. Um, I, I've known a lot of singers, you know, that, they, that blew out their voices back in the day. Um, you know, because they weren't properly trained to actually sing, and then they go out on tour for a year and just completely destroy their vocal cords, or, or get polyps, or get this, or get that, and then the surgery would actually alter their voice when they had it fixed. And like, it, it, you know, I, I knew one who actually lost her voice altogether. Like she, to this day, just whispers. That's all she's able to do. Um, you know, from something that should have been a simple surgery. So like, things like that can go wrong too. So like, I, I can see a lot of other you know ways to, to utilize this. You know, even you know, going back to the Scott Brick thing. You know, he's he's so in demand. You know, like this is a way where he could actually spread him out a little bit further um you know without having to, to lock himself in his own sound booth to be recording each audiobook he could hand off a couple to ai scott brick if he wanted to I, I i like it you know as long as it's done properly and like you said as long as as long as as a consumer we're told you know i, I want to know going in that it's an ai voice i i, I don't want somebody to try yeah. and trick me yeah it'll be interesting we'll have to keep our eyes on it and uh let you guys know as we hear more so a uh, couple little quick pieces of business before we get to the guest today. Uh, a reminder that the, the Author Life Summit tickets are still on sale and available. Uh, also want to give a shout out to an old friend of Zach and I's, uh, Val. Uh, Val Francis has a new podcast coming called the Story Nerd Podcast. So if, you would, uh, if you're interested in dissecting story, um, Val's, Val's a great host. We'll have a link in the show notes. And as always, we want to give a wonderful shout out to our friends over there at Kobo Writing Life. If you are publishing a book wide, then Kobo Writing Life is a must. Uh, you get to set your price internationally. Uh, you keep all of your rights. You get uh, opportunities for be, to be in promotions. And um, 
and uh, all of that without any exclusivity. So you gotta you gotta check them out, uh, CobraReadingLife.com if you haven't signed up yet, and um, and that'll take us into the guest. And I believe our guest this week is Meg Bowles. Uh, so Meg is uh, with the Moth Foundation. Um, they have for many years. Uh, been doing uh, live spoken word presentations all over the world, and they finally uh, wrote a book on how to do a moth uh, presentation. So uh, this should be a, a great talk, especially for those of you who are performers or looking to uh, do some narration. Uh, this this is going to be a really great episode. So uh, let's take a listen. This is Meg Bowles. Okay, Meg. So I'm on a flight from Copenhagen to New York. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have a question there. I just thought like I have to open with that. <laughs> can, can, can you explain? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm based in Sweden. I work I've been working remotely for the last 7 years. So before remote work became a thing, I've been remote working and so I am often on a flight between Copenhagen and New York. <laughs> so cuz Copenhagen is my nearest airport. So um yeah, and you do you strike up conversations with people on planes. Well, if you want to, right? <laughs> if you if you don't, you put your headsets in, you know. <laughs> but, Has that changed more recently? Uh, or have you flown more recently? And I haven't. I'm about to fly for the first time in two years. I'm coming to New York for a show there in April. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We'll okay. see. Yeah. yeah. I do find though, that when I run into people like, you know, out and about walking dogs and things like that, that people seem to want to talk. Like they <laughs> seem to want to connect to people because everybody has been so shut away for so long now, you know, and really living these very insular lives that, I don't know. I, I get the feeling that people are more, they're ready. Yes. <laughs> they're ready to, they're ready to talk <laughs> and connect. For sure. Yeah. We're, we're going to, uh, we're going to get into some of that, uh, today. This is, a, this is kind of a treat for me because we, we interview a lot of fiction authors and they spend most of their time behind a keyboard. Um, you're a nonfiction author, but you spend a lot of time behind a microphone. Uh, and so I, I kind of feel like, uh, you, you, you got the basics covered and we can kind of get into some fun stuff. Yay. Excellent. <laughs> well, why don't you let our listeners know uh, what the moth is if they, I don't know, have, haven't been around for the past 25 years. Uh, what is the moth and what's your role there? Well, the, at the moth, we work with people to help them find their story, to help them stand on a stage in front of an audience, anywhere from 300 to 3000 people and share some of the biggest moments or small moments from their life that moved or shaped them in some way. Um, and, you know, we have little stages, we have slam stages where people can go put their name in a hat for a chance to get up on stage and tell a five minute story. And then we have the main stage where we do, you know, where we work with people and really help them do a 10 to 12 minute story. Um, and we do those all over the country and we tape those. And then that's what we use for the moth radio hour and podcast is the audio from those shows. Now, I know every few years I see some scientific study that says people would rather die than do public speaking. So <laughs> how, how do you approach that? Uh, it is true. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's so interesting because often, you know, I'll call people who are not performers. They're not people who get on stage regularly and they'll be like, you want me to what? <laughs> you want me to 
get on stage in front of that many people and talk, you know, but, um, but it's, it's interesting because those same people will go through the process, will find the confidence, will get behind that mic, will come off that stage and say to me, when can I do it again? <laughs> you know, It's like, like a roller coaster, you know, it's like, there's, there's all this fear, but I think that fear comes from confidence, right? Like, what am I going to say? What am I going to, you know, what are people going to think of what I say? And, and so much, I, I deal with that all the time when working with people is getting them over that piece of it. Well, the book does a beautiful job of sort of laying out the sort of the, the ethos of the moth and, and, and sort of its origin story and then uh, how, how it functions and uh, w with a lot of great sort of anecdotal and, and, uh, and, and different stories from, from participants. Uh, so I'd like to dig into the moth style a little bit. You guys call it the moth style, and there are certain rules that apply to a moth performance that might differ from some other sort of presentation or public speaking. Can you talk about those for a minute? Sure. I mean, a moth story typically is true. Um, it happened to you. It didn't happen to your mother or your brother. You know, it's your story. Um, and I mean, the only real, real rules are that they have to have some stakes, right? Some reason for your listener to really invest and, and care about the story. Um, and there has to be some change in you over the co course of the story. You know, what, who were you at the beginning versus who were you at the end? Um, and, and moth stories, I mean, the biggest thing is that they're personal, right? I mean, I say they're, they're your story, but that, that's the thing that sets it apart. I think it's, it's not a Ted talk. It's not, necessarily based in a big idea or big facts. It's, it's you, it's how you felt, how you walked through the world, how you changed as a result of, of something you lived through or accomplished or did, you know? Um, so yeah, I think in, that's in a general nutshell. Those, those are our rules. Yes. Yes. Uh, some of the specifics maybe we could talk a little bit about too, and, and sort of the reasoning behind those, such as a time limit, uh, no prepared yes. notes, like what, how do those factor into the moth experience? Right. And those are very stickler. Those are stickler rules, but yeah, we, um, the time limit is really, it just gives people something to use as a structure, right. As a, a and, and it, you know, there's the five minute time limit and the 12 minute time limit, but we say that you can tell a story you can tell the same story in two minutes and five minutes and 12 minutes. It's just about which details you use. Um, we say no notes because, you know, people don't want you to stand up and read a story. They want you to share a story. You know, moth stories tend to be like you're at a dinner and people are sitting around and telling a story and nobody is pulling out their notes to tell a story at dinner, right? It's much more intimate when you lose that that crutch of a, you know, or I shouldn't say that, but you know what I mean? It's the, the, the thing that you're using to depend on for when you know it, you lived it, it's your story. Um, and, and we also say no props, you know, <laughs> no props, no acting out. We want you to be you authentically. And we want you to paint the picture with your words, you know, um, and not depend on other things to, uh, to aid that. When I was back in the classroom and I would ask my students to do a, a presentation and I would say no notes, my my type A's would simply go in and memorize it. <laughs> and and right. you could tell like they would sit up there and you and they were they were reciting what, what they memorized. How do you how do you gently 
move people away from that? Because I, I'm sure there are many people who say, oh, okay, great. I'm just going to go memorize this and I'll have it locked in. Yeah. Well, and our big thing is that it's less about memorizing and more about being familiar, right? Being really familiarizing yourself with the course of your story. Um, I'm going to talk about this and then I'm going to talk about this. And then like having bullet points in your brain so that you know, that you're, you know, how you're going to go through your story as opposed to being so, so tight to your words. Cause often like the, the thing I've seen happen the most is the people who are the most memorized are the ones that freeze on stage. They go blank because they can't remember the next word and they don't remember where they are in their story because they're not present in the telling of the story, right? They're, they're not remembering the memories they're trying to remember the words. And so when they get stuck, they're like, wait, where am I? They don't even have an idea of where they are in the story. Um, and often when somebody gets very married to their words, which is what I call it, the, um, and they're, they sound memorized, they sound like, it sounds like a recitation. It doesn't sound like they're talking to me. I'll tell them to to take the story. And now I want you to just tell it to me, but you have to tell it to me in all different words. You can't use the same words. And, and they'll be like, what? And then, and they will, and they'll stumble and fumble their way through it, but they'll tell me the exact same story, but they'll mix up their words. And it shows them that they know their story, right? Because so much of that memorization is about fear that you will mess up or that you won't get it exactly right. But there is no exactly right. It's your story. You know it, you lived it, you know, you have to have that confidence in telling it. Well, I can imagine if public speaking is at the top of the list of people's fears, freezing up in the middle of a public speaking performance has to be the just the worst i mean how do you what do you do with someone like that as they're coming off the stage how do you support them and 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 help them get through that um i've had a couple of storytellers that that has happened to and i have to say that the audience is the they're the ones that are doing the supporting i've had in both instances there's uh one woman was telling a story in london and it was a very emotional story and she was very nervous she was not a performer she you know this was i called her out of the blue and she was like what you know? and and she got up on stage in front of two thousand people and uh froze and went silent and the audience, she just kind of gave, you know, my advice when that happens is to breathe, right? Just to breathe. And the audience just started applauding and it got very loud and you could just feel the energy in the room and you could just see her kind of go, oh, it's okay. It's all right. And in that moment of the energy in the room and the pause to have for them to applaud, she found her footing again and she went forward. But it's really incredible to see a room full of people kind of lean in like that and catch you, you know, and, and really, and, and she went through the rest of the story flawlessly, you know, and she was fine, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. That's such a heartwarming thing to hear. And, and yeah. uh, I, I can remember hearing uh, similar explanations about audiences in general. And uh, we're not talking about sort of a, um, a political debate, but if you're, if you're talking about say a performance of some kind, or a presentation, everyone in the audience wants you to succeed. Like they want you to do well. And, uh, and that, I think that gets lost a lot of times when you step up behind the microphone and that you, you feel this, it feels adversarial, but really they're rooting for you. Like it's uncomfortable to watch somebody bomb and you don't want to, you don't want that to happen to them. 
It's so true. It's so true. The audience is completely on your side. And I think, you know, when, uh, when you are your authentic self and you are like just being who you are on stage and in that most vulnerable way of telling your own story that um, there's an empathy, right? And people see themselves in you um, and they imagine what it would be like to feel that in that moment. And it's, it's really quite beautiful. I have to, <laughs> I have to say it's really beautiful. What, t take us inside the in-person group rehearsal that takes place before the show. Sure. Um, we, we do, you know, we have uh, shows all around the country and often I'll be working with people over the phone for the weeks leading up to, um, to coming to rehearsal. And so I will have never met them and we walk in. And so it's the first time we're face to face. There are a lot of hugs, a lot of like, I feel like I've known you for years, you know, <laughs> and then, um, but they're usually, five, we have five storytellers in a main stage show and a host and we all gather together before the sh you know the day before the show when we're on on the road and um and each person will get up and tell their story and it's their first opportunity to do it with uh, with an audience of sorts right it's the first time that they're not doing it with me over the phone or with the, another director over the phone um they're doing it for a group and they have to stand up and tell it um, and it's often where they, their first opportunity to feel where the nerves are going to hit them and where they're going to, where, where they might trip up or where they, where they, you know, where they go blank. And it's, it's rather than doing that in front of a, an audience, they do it here. And, and, and it also gives them a chance to just shake it out, right. Shake out the nerves. And often people will say that the rehearsal is the hardest part because the audience is small and it's much more intimate and it's, you know, you can, you can kind of forget the audience when you're on stage with bright lights, but you can't when you're in a small room. Um, yeah. And so we listen to all the story storytellers together, and then we figure out, you know, how they would work together for the order of a show. And, um, and then we give them back notes, you know, things that we want them to remember something they may have forgotten. Um, and then, they all give each other notes, right? And they all give each other com uh, compliments and and lift each other up. And so suddenly they're all bonded. You have these five storytellers who are all in the same boat, who are all about to get on stage. And so it, they become really fast friends and there's a really nice energy to a rehearsal. Um, afterwards, we all go out to dinner and we talk about how great each other's stories were. It's, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. My favorite part. I love the rehearsal yeah. dinner. <laughs> well, you're involved in, in many aspects of this of this process. Uh, so you know they they come off stage and and now you you run the Moth Radio Hour and so you have these very difficult decisions to make. You're you're a curator of these. How do you how do you and the team decide which ones you're going to feature on the radio show? Well, we have um, you know there are multiple hosts of the Radio Hour, so we all take you know, we all have different hours that we put together, but before we even get to that stage, everything that's told on our stage slams, um, and our community and education programs, our global programs, our, um, main stage slams. We, we listen to the audio, uh, as a creative team, we have an archive call, we call it where we listen to everything and we discuss it and we decide, Oh, should we give them another chance? Should they go tell it again in another city and maybe fix this little part, or this was an A plus let's put that on the radio. Like, you know, I mean, there's, there are, um, you know, we all listen and, and, uh, and kind of decide what moves on and what, uh, what we want to kind of nurture a little more. 
Um, so yeah. Nice. Nice. Uh, I, I know that we, I was going to say, but then we take those, uh, you know, and we, we put them, we do curate them into hours and we try to like find a theme or, or we just put five, you know, four or five great stories into an hour that we think will complement each other. So there is that other layer of curating for the radio shows um, after the fact. So okay, <laughs> like, okay, yeah. So it's a multi-layer process. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I know that uh, you know our, our audience is writers, and uh, they might be thinking like, I don't know, I write like. How, why would I benefit from a live performance? Why should I, why should I subject myself to that uh, experience when I can, you know, just sit behind my keyboard and, and type my words? Well, I think, you know, looking at the book and, you know, the, all stories have the same basic principles, right? There are these, you know, you want a story that has stakes. You want there to be some sort of change and arc, you know, there are details and, things that make people actually feel an emotion, you know, cause that's something that as a writer, you want to make your reader feel something, right? You want to, to create um, images for people to imagine as they're reading. And so I think that all the elements to what make a good story, whether it's told, you know, as a first person personal story or a fiction story, they're all the elements to what makes a great story are very similar you know they're they're all they're there they're they're the same i have a a theory i want to run past you uh and see what you think of this i think i know what you're going to say uh my theory is that if you have to teach something or tell something to someone that you get better at it in the in the process of the of the telling or the teaching and so it then translates into the written word if that's the the final medium that that the the work is going to rest in um would you agree or disagree with that sure like you mean like if you are telling someone the story that you're like you're processing through the story and you're telling it to someone to to kind of hear it and right. see how it works. I mean, right. is that what you mean? Yeah, like for example, yeah. if you're a novelist and uh, you're working on a scene that involves a conversation between two characters uh, and you practice the dialogue even in a mirror or you practice it with a friend that uh, then then you're going to be able to write it better because you've sort of you sort of tested it out first. Right. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, because I think when you say things out loud, you know, especially on the page, sometimes things can sound very written and very stiff and not not real or not authentic sometimes. And and when you say them out loud and hear them, that might become more true to you. You might you might recognize that more. And and sometimes I do think saying it out loud allows you to kind of hear to see it in a way as strange as that might sound but to you know to feel it to to know does that work really you know <laughs> yeah i agree i totally agree <laughs> <laughs> and, and we don't have to mention any specific dates but uh can you tell us about how you got involved with the moth and and why Sure. Um, well, it was many, many years ago <laughs> at the very beginning when George first started The Moth. Um, he, I met him and he invited me to come to an evening of stories that he was putting together. And he was like, it, and it was, 
it was incredible. It was magical. I mean, I listened back to the audio years later and uh, realized that the stories were flawed and they weren't, they were clumsy and they were long and they were, you know, but they, but there was something about the magic in that room of having people stand up and just share stories for an uninterrupted period of time. um, That was just so kind of revelatory. Like I'd never seen anything like it. And even now I get so excited when I go to a theater and you look up on the stage and there's one microphone stand and a chair where the musician sits and that's it, you know, and that room fills up and they're here just to see that person stand at that microphone, that one person, you know, and that's pretty, it's, so it's still, it's still very magical. That idea that people would be kind of, so engaged to just sit and listen to a story. And so I, yeah, I was hooked from the very, very beginning. And I started volunteering with, with George, helping him find people. So, and uh, I would call people and, and try to get them to, to tell a story. And um, I remember in 2001, I was so excited because uh, I wanted, we we were doing a, 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 an evening of stories called coming home. And um, I wanted to get an astronaut. I was, I just really wanted to get an astronaut. And I call, I found, I through a bunch, a series of different phone calls, I managed to be connected to Rick, Commander Rick Halk, who, um, who had commanded the first mission after Challenger exploded. And um, he told a story about that. And I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. So I was, I, I have been in love with the moth ever since. It really, it's been something just, all the people that you meet and all the stories that you hear, it's kind of humbling and inspiring all at once. It's really great. Do you have a short list of, of moth performances that when people ask you about the moth, you're like, wow, you would not believe this one. Like, do you, do you have a short <laughs> list of those? What, what might be an example of one? Yeah. I mean, I have so, there's so many, right. And it, it, depending on what the conversation is about, often I'll be like, oh, I have a friend. Well, I mean, it's a moth storyteller that I worked with (laughs) who becomes a friend, you know, you do because you spend so much time with them and then talk to them. But yeah, I mean, I, I have people who, whose stories really stick with me. Um, you know, like Carl Pilateri, who was um, working in reactor one of Fukushima uh, when the earthquake struck, that story will forever stick with me. And, um, you know, there, especially because he was so affected by, by the the events, you know, he was clearly suffering from, from PTSD, from being, having gone through that kind of trauma and going through the process of telling his story really, kind of opened him up and gave him a, an ability to, to c- control his story and, and to really tell it in a way that calmed, you know, that really helped him. And I was, that was amazing for me an experience to see how powerful storytelling can actually be on you. You know, just the act of telling your story can be healing. It was pretty incredible. So yeah. And then there are just other stories that you're like, um, that are just, amazing or crazy or just so many um, different situations. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint into a short list, you know, but, but on any given day, somebody will pop into my mind or somebody will say something that reminds me of a, of a story. And so, yeah, there's always a list. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a favorite? (laughs) Do you have ones that stick with you? There's so many, Uh, there's so many, right? Like, yeah, I, I can imagine like 
at a family gathering, uh, someone asks you a question, you're like, that's like this time and just eye rolling. Like, oh, here we go. Another moth story. <laughs> I haven't gotten that bad, but yes, I think it is true. Okay. If you ask my dad, maybe if you ask my dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're always bringing the entertainment like that's, right? that's a good thing <laughs> i'm always telling other people's stories which is a rule we have you shouldn't do right so <laughs> yeah <laughs> well let's yeah. assume uh buying the book is a, is a good first step what might be a good second step for someone who finds this whole idea intriguing or has been thinking about giving the moth a shot uh what what, what can they do next well i mean there are several ways if it depending on where you live we have a lot of different slams in various cities around the country uh you can go and put your name in a hat and tell a five-minute story we group those on themes and we announce the themes in advance and and uh you know lost and found or love hurts or you know all kinds of themes and uh you can go and take the stage that way um if if you're interested in working on a longer story we have a pitch line um, which you can call and we listen to all those pitches. We have a group of us who listen and, and, uh, and we'll call people back and talk to them. And, and if we think, oh, this might be a great slam story, you should go to a slam or, or, you know, maybe we should talk to you about the show in Boston. You know, this is a great story for there. So we, and we definitely do call up uh, so many great stories have come from the moth pitch line. Um, so that's, that's a great, that's a great way to, to get, get to us. Cause a lot of people want to, you know, originally people would send us stuff and it's just a, a much easier way for us to kind of get to hear your story, get to hear you and then, and call you back. So pitch line is great. <laughs> I right. love the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, I have one more question for you and, uh, and hopefully this will be a fun one. Um, what are you excited about for the moths next 25 years? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just the the stories that have yet to be told. Uh, of course, I'm always excited about those. I've been in the pandemic, you know, we have I haven't been working as much on new stories because we just haven't had the opportunity to be in theaters and have people tell their stories. And so I have missed that tremendously. And I've just recently been preparing for an, my next round of shows and finding new stories. And and I always I'm always amazed, you know, when I find another really amazing story that someone has. And I'm, I get so excited about working with them. And so I, that I will always forever for the next 25 years, be excited about the stories. I'm also excited about like just where storytelling in general can take us, you know, um, from various podcasts to helping, helping do, you know, a couple of moth stories are being made into movies and to TV shows and, you know, developed further. I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity to kind of help take some of these voices that have found their way to the moss stage onto bigger stages as well. All right. Meg Bowles, the moth. Uh, I think JD, you were saying like, uh, you kept thinking about the Mothman uh, movie when <laughs> talking about the moth, right? 
I, I, I love that the, the, the movie and, and the legend, all the stuff surrounding it. I, I eat that stuff up. So if I'm up at three o'clock in the morning, I'm like turning to like USA Network looking looking for that movie because it's always on somewhere. Um, I, honestly, like public speaking, like that scared the crap out of me when I, you know, like that was honestly like one of the main reasons I didn't want to become an author. I didn't want to have to get up in front of a group and, and talk. And, you know, it's it's so freaking frightening, um, you know, but until you do it a lot, you know, and then it just it gets easier and it gets easier. And I had mentioned, um, I think it was last week or the week before, but, you know, with Thriller Fest, they've got Pitch Fest. And one of the things that they're doing this year is um, they, they've lined up um, a couple coaches to actually work with the authors and help them fine tune their pitch before they actually go in front of the the real Pitch Fest. And I was I was doing that today um, uh, over Zoom. I, I had about six or seven different authors. Um, and one of the first things I told them was something that, that she brought up is don't memorize your, your text, you know, whatever it is you want to you know get across. Just memorize the bullet points. Write down the, the topics you want to get across. Um, and it will flow so much better. Like, it'll feel more conversational. I feel like it's just coming off the top of your head instead of, you know, just telling a, a, a story. If you lose your place, it's easy enough to get back. Like there's, there's so many, you know, benefits to that. And I, I wish more people knew that, you know, going into these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you on that. Like, I mean, that makes such a huge difference if you just have bullet points in your head instead of sitting there trying to basically read a script out, you know? And I think some of the other things she talked about was really awesome. I mean, pretty much, I mean, she laid out basically the pillars of storytelling, you know, she's like, you have, it needs to, there need to be stakes. Like you, the, you, your character, quote unquote, like you in this instance need to, so you need to change by the end of it. I mean, those are the things that the pillars that make up a great story. And, um, you know, I think you can tell just when talking to people sometime in person, when they're telling you a story who naturally has that and who doesn't, because some people like, I don't know, they will tell boring stories in a really boring way. But, um, the, the other part of that is, you know, she mentions how they put a time limit on people. And when, when she was talking about that, I was thinking about, um, you know, Jay, you mentioned this a lot more at events and stuff. I think it's Kurt Vonnegut says, you know, start, start as close to the end as possible. It's, yes. it's Vonnegut, right? Um, and I think that kind of forces people to do that because if you're, if you're telling like this story from your life, it's good you know, it, without those restraints, it might be really easy to give a bunch of unnecessary information and, um, you know, info dump as, as we say, or, or give a prologue that doesn't matter, you know, Oh, I was born and so-and-so. And, um, I don't know, like I think having those restraints, um, and just, and, and all that, and those basic pillars of storytelling is, uh, is, is really awesome with that. Yeah, that's one of the things that I had a lot of trouble with early on is trying to judge that. Like I created my bullet points and knew what I wanted to talk about. But, you know, one little thing that you think might take two minutes, you know, it, it's very easy, at least for me, to ramble on for 12. Um, you know, and it takes a, a lot of practice in order to, to get used to that kind of thing. Um, for me, I, I feel like I really kind of learned how to do it when I was on tour with Dacre Stoker doing the the, the, the press for um, Dracul. Because um, he has it dialed in. I mean, he's got a, a bunch of different presentations he does. He's a former teacher, you know, so he's been doing this his, his entire life. And one of the things he told me that he did early on to help him rein that in was use PowerPoint, you know, use a slide presentation to go along with it. Um, because he could, you know, basically run through that on his own. He could time himself for each individual slide. And then he could actually walk away and say, this slide is three minutes, 12 seconds. This one is four minutes and that, that kind of thing. Um, and even if you don't actually go out with that, you know, like we did that for quite a few of them, but, you know, there were places where we weren't able to actually have a, a slide presentation going. Um, but if you do it enough with the presentation, you can hold yourself to those those time constraints, which is, is very helpful. 
Um, one of the other things that she brought up, and this may seem kind of silly, but like a, a large audience is actually way easier to speak to than a small one, um, which I wouldn't have expected, you know, going into this. But yeah, like a, a big room filled with a lot of people, it's almost like they become, I don't want to say non-existent because that's not really the, the case, but they tend to blend together a little bit more. Um, it just makes it more comfortable to be up on that stage than when you're in front of, you know, a small group like five to 10 or 12 or, or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's a huge difference. I mean, me, me and, uh, just think about my when I was in a band. I mean, it, it was always awkward when if you played a show in front of like ten or fifteen people, but the shows where it was like a couple hundred in a, in a room or whatever, or, so, or a few four or five hundred or whatever, were like just way easier because you don't find yourself like picking out the, the few people in the room. So, uh, but it is something if you haven't had the experience of being on stage and performing or speaking in front of a lot of people, it's, that's something you don't think about that can be very surprising. You know, and the, the trick to it, like, I, I, you know, back in the day, like Guns N' Roses was one of the bands that I, I worked with. And I saw them perform at a place called Summers on the Beach with about 12 people in the audience. And they played that show as if they were in front of like 20, 30,000, um, you know, which was key. Like there was no difference in their performance. Um, I think that's important. One, one of my favorite authors I've ever seen live um, was Andy Weir. I was at a library conference in Chicago and he was coming. It was his second book. I, I, the name escapes me, but it came out after Artemis. the Martian. Yeah, that was it. Um, and, and he was phenomenal. Like, he, he completely worked that crowd. He had everybody just roaring and laughing. And a lot of it, you know, it, it felt like it was all ad-libbed. Um, and I don't think it was, you know, but I, I, he was capable of making it come across like that. Um, comedians are phenomenal at it. They're, they're probably the best um, because they have to be. You know, it's all about timing. Um, you know, I've, I've seen a, a couple comedians, you know, like in small venues and, you know, they've got their notepad out because they're testing material for their HBO special. Um, but they're, you know, it's all about that timing. They, they know exactly when to pause and they realize, you know, they think about exactly, you know, they, they figure out what works and what doesn't and they, they fine tune it. And like as an author, you know, if you're giving a, a speech, like you need to be able to do that too or, or any type of speech and, and it's all about repetition the more times you do it you know you're going to hone in on where the, the audience is going to laugh where they're going to sigh where they're going to where you're going to lose them and, and you can keep tweaking until you get it right yeah i mean i i think i'll just kind of put a cap on this and and say that like i even if you consider yourself to be just a writer there's something so valuable in in being able to articulate your ideas verbally especially in front of other people so uh if you ever have the opportunity whether it's the moth or toastmasters or even presenting at your local library uh, you'll find it incredibly helpful to clarify your own thinking if you stand up in front of a group and have to explain yourself so i would i would definitely recommend that so that was a great talk with Meg. Really appreciate her coming on. And, uh, and you know, hopefully here, you know, the mosque's got uh, another 25 years or so uh, at least. But uh, we'll see. So, uh, J.D., who's on deck for next week? Next week, we've got Jenny Nash coming in. She's the founding member of Author Accelerator. They, they train and certified book coaches and pair them up with authors. Um, she's got a new book out called Blueprint for a Nonfiction Book, uh, which I believe releases May 31st. She's going to be here to talk about awesome. that. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.